Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Wildlife Journeys. I'm your co-host, Emma. And I'm your co-host, Dan. And today we have Dr. Andrew Hoffman, who is a assistant professor in biology at St. John Fisher University in New York. Um, Andrew, welcome to the show. And do you want to tell us a little bit about your educational background and um, your current position? Yeah, thanks. Happy to be here. Um, my background is mostly in ecology and wildlife conservation. I have an undergraduate degree from Hanover College, which is a small liberal arts college in Indiana, and a master's degree from Missouri State University. And I got my PhD and postdoc at The Ohio State University. I apologize to anyone listening. I am currently sick, so I sound a little nasally. But yeah, so where did your passion for this field for wildlife begin um, and when? Were you, you know, a kid? Did this start as you got older? So there's there's a video somewhere of me at like three years old floating down a river in a little inflatable raft that my dad was towing. He liked to fish a lot. So I was out in nature a lot from a very young age. And I very quickly decided that I like to catch things in the water more. Well, I like to catch things by hand in the water more than I like to try to fish for things. So I I was catching frogs and salamanders and turtles from, you know, four, five, six on. I think I caught my first snake at six. So I, I sort of just grew up outside a lot and I just became obsessively interested in different things at different times. I went through phases. I liked, you know, flowers for a while. I liked dinosaurs. I liked snakes and salamanders and snakes and salamanders and turtles are the ones that just kind of stuck around the longest. So I think I was a nature obsessed kid who grew into like a obsessively field guide reading sort of adolescent high schooler who traveled around, uh, was fortunate to have parents that would take him around the state of Indiana where I grew up to look for and photograph snakes and turtles. And, you know, I would try to connect with professionals, whoever would would listen to me or give me some time. I think they were probably just interested to hear like a, you know, 15 year old kid rattle off scientific names for things um, and, and be that kind of interested. So yeah, I, I had a really obsessive interest from an early age and I had parents that fortunately really fueled that and encouraged it. And where did you start off uh, like college and, and what, what did you study at first? Did you know right off the bat that you wanted to go into ecology and conservation? Yeah. So I think when I realized that being Steve Irwin wasn't really like a career path, I decided that I was going to be a herpetologist. And so I was looking at colleges uh, that had herpetologists there to sort of mentor me. And I really wanted to go to a small college as kind of, I've always been sort of, uh, I like quieter stuff. I'm not real social. So I wanted a small college in a quieter scene. And so I, I ended up looking at a few different colleges and I got to meet with two or three professors who were primarily studying reptiles and amphibians. And I just ended up picking Hanover College because it, uh, I really liked the professor, Dr. Daryl Carnes there. And the distance from home was like two and a half hours, which was far enough to not feel like I'm right at home, but not so far that a trip home wasn't too hard. So it just really checked all the boxes for me. And that's kind of why I ended up there. Yeah. And you grew up, grew up in Indiana, right? I did. Yeah, I grew up in Richmond, Indiana. So right on the Ohio line. So, yeah, when you started at Hanover, did you focus, did you do like an undergrad project or focus on any particular species or did that kind of start when you went into your master's and how did that journey go? 
Yeah, I got a fair amount of experience as an undergrad, which I think in retrospect now realize was a little unusual. And I, I just had a lot of good fortune in my life, I think, and I've connected with the right people at the right times. But I think it was between my freshman and my sophomore year, I got my first real job tracking box turtles with the hardwood ecosystem experiment in southern Indiana, which was like a Purdue University, Indiana DNR sort of cooperative big project. And then because I had that, I got the next year to come on and track timber rattlesnakes. Uh, so I had two summers in a row working for them, tracking reptiles in Southern Indiana. I got to, I don't remember if this was before that, might've even been my freshman year, might've been my sophomore year, where I got to set up a drift fence in the sort of forested valley behind our campus to try to catch salamanders with my advisor. And then my last couple of years at Hanover, I did research with crawfish frogs at the local wild. I mean, I had a wildlife refuge that was like 10 minutes from campus. So I just was, you know, I, I think I didn't realize how unusual that was at the time either, that I just had a wildlife refuge and a state park, both within 10 minutes that both had really rare species. And these, you know, land managers that were doing a lot of research with those herb species. So uh, I got to go out, you know, late March and go out at night with my advisor and the wildlife refuge manager and we'd drive around and look for these frogs and go out in the ponds and set traps and catch them and listen for coursing frogs and it was great i mean it was just a, a really fun time and uh, a lot of good experiences in there yeah that's that's amazing indiana is one of those states that it's like so long and you just get such great wildlife diversity from you know north to south and it, when yes. i lived there for a couple of years and i worked with dr kingsbury a little on the oh yeah yeah um indiana herp atlas and i noticed yep. your name on there quite a bit so did you start working on that when you were an undergrad or how did that come about so i started that with todd pearson and well, I started the the version that is kind of what you see mostly in Indiana, in the Indiana Herp Atlas. Um, and then we kind of, uh, you know, merged with uh, Bruce and his efforts later on. But I think Todd and I started just sort of making a website with pictures and range maps and, and stuff on Herps of Indiana. I think I was probably in college, but he was probably in high school. So um, we, we started that pretty early. And that was part of our kind of collective efforts to uh, journey around the state. I, and I think I may have just said Todd, Todd Pearson, who is now uh, a professor in Georgia um, and has done a lot of work with salamanders, especially. But we both were sort of just kids at the time going around Indiana looking for salamanders and snakes and turtles, trying to document all of the species that lived in the state. We never quite got there, but we got a lot of them and we had a lot of fun along the way. So that was I think that was at least our part of the beginnings of the Indiana Herp Atlas. How did you connect with uh, with Todd Pearson? Because like, yeah, I also lived in the southeast for a little bit. And anyone who's into amphibians in in the Midwest or the southeast has seen Todd's name hundreds of times. Sure. And yeah, it was a long time before I, I actually like saw him at a conference and like put two and two together. But yeah, that's yeah, just so, so cool. I think it was through the field herp forum, which back in like the early 2000s was the was the big thing that all the herpers would would kind of get together. on. I don't know. I assume it's still out there in some form, but I haven't seen it or been on it in years. But, you know, I would just maybe starting in high school, but definitely I think starting in high school, actually. 
I would get on this field hurt forum and like chat with adults in other parts of the world about, you know, post things and post what I was finding in my local streams as a high schooler and see what people were posting in Missouri and other places and kind of get to know these names that have now gone on to do all kinds of other things. Um, but Todd was, was, Oh, I think right in there with me as a kid posting pictures of water snakes in streams in Indiana and just trying to learn from other people who were older and had done this for longer. And you know, it was such a strange thing because this was definitely coming out of like the, the stranger danger era of the nineties and early two thousands where it was, it was still a very weird and unusual thing for my parents to explain to people. Oh yeah. Like he, he posts things on this forum and, you know, 40 year old people on in, in other areas comment on it. And we're going to drive him to meet this 40 year old guy. Who's going to, we're going to go looking snakes to get It's a very weird thing. But so Todd and I, I think met through that. We were both excited that there were these young, you know, another young person in Indiana looking for snakes and salamanders. And I, I have a decent memory of uh, we, I think, my dad drove me to meet with Todd at a park in Indianapolis uh, where he was with his dad. And so then we all went out and looked for snakes in Indianapolis together with, you know, parental supervision. I, and I think I was probably in high school and he was probably in middle school when we first met. Um, and so then we just sort of continued our friendship on uh, to this day still. That's awesome. That's such a cool story. And did, yeah, you, it was fun. did you spend some time at uh, Eagle Creek down there? Yes, yes, we did. I didn't. I really think Todd cool probably spent a lot more time than me than I did there because he was closer. But I, I did go to Eagle Creek a couple times. Yeah, spent a lot of time birding there. It's, uh, it's a really cool park. Yeah, it's a cool place to have. Basically, right there in Indianapolis, for sure. I love all the positive Indiana talk because I feel like it's a state that, I mean, gets a lot of. It, People don't always talk highly of Indiana because they think it's a boring state, but there's a lot of cool yeah. natural yeah. history and parks <laughs> and wildlife there. Yeah. And I like, you know, I, I won't comment on on anything beyond the ecology of Indiana, but the ecology of Indiana and the landscape and the natural history of it is is remarkable. It's a state that I think, as Dan mentioned, it spans. Uh, it really is where the prairies stop and the eastern deciduous forests begin. But if you go north to south, it's where the swamps of the Mississippi River end. The Posey County in the far southwestern corner has cypress swamps. And then if you go up to the northwest, you have sand prairies. Northeast, you have Great Lakes, sort of uh, kettle ponds and, and all that kind of stuff and, and marshes and swamps. And then in the middle, it's you know more boring generally, but there's there's still cool areas even in the middle of the state. And then in the you know a lot of the southern part of the state's almost Appalachian, and it's rolling hills and big extensive forests. And um, some of outside of the Appalachians, I would say South Central Indiana has some of the biggest contiguous rolling forested areas that you can find things like timber rattlesnakes. It's uh, it's very big and expansive. Brown County especially is almost entirely big continuous forest. So it's it's a I love the state for a lot of reasons. It's not a state that I am particularly keen to go live in again, but I love to visit and I will always have fond memories of the natural history and, and exploring the state. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's the case with a lot of states and states that aren't as well liked, um, understandably. Um, <laughs> I mean, I feel that same way about Ohio, but yeah. I think privilege of being in this field and loving wildlife so so much is that you can find joy in the ecology of these places and find beauty in these states and something to do when a lot of other people are like, there's nothing to do here. So I always find yeah. that 
you know, that's that's something really special to me about this field is because I'm like, well, you don't know that there's this really cool salamander species there. Like, that's something to go do. <laughs> Yeah, I think most people are so focused on everything that's related to humans, human society, human sort of fun things to do, that there's this whole other world that's flying under their radar. And sometimes that whole other world is really fascinating and diverse and unexpected. So I feel there is a lot of that in the Midwest, especially even though it's often kind of considered the flyover states. Yeah, exactly. So going back a little bit, was there a foot in the door moment for you when you first really got into this field professionally? I mean, I know you said your first field jobs, you're working with box turtles and salamanders. How did that kind of start? Was there someone at your university that helped you get started in this? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure my advisor would have sort of helped prepare me for applying for these jobs. But I think a big part of it was I was so eager to find all of the reptiles and amphibians that lived in Indiana that I was going out, you know, in high school, uh, but definitely in college, just in all my weekends. And that, that's what I did in my free time is I just looked for herps. Like I didn't party. I didn't socialize much. I, I would jump in the car and go somewhere and I've got to document this species. I've never seen it before. I've got to see it in this county. I think it's a historic record, just really single minded obsessiveness. Um, and that led me to being in touch with the state herpetologist, who I believe was Zach Walker at the time in Indiana. And he was kind enough to let me come along on a couple different trips. One, especially, I remember looking for hellbenders. So I, at a fairly young age and early time in my career, got to see hellbenders just to, for for kicks for me. I mean, you know, I think often we say like, oh, they're coming along to help. You know, and I, I helped lift rocks and look, but I'm, I'm mostly along for fun, right? It was a really great experience for me. And he was, I believe, on the hiring committee for this sort of box turtle and timber rattlesnake tracking position. And so he kind of knew who I was from that. And then I, I don't know if this helped or not, but I apparently had a big Lebowski voice message answering thing. And one of them left a message and happened to be a fan of the big Lebowski, the movie. So, uh, you know, I think they, you know, it rings in and it says dude here. And then, you know, some other line from the big, Lebowski. <laughs> I was embarrassed, but then he said it was made him laugh. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I, I don't know, a mixture of maybe knowing me a little bit from coming along and, uh, and from that maybe got me the job, but I think probably getting that first position in Indiana, that's what allowed me to get the second position, which, you know, many years later, having the experience tracking both box turtles, but especially rattlesnakes allowed me to get, uh, the position in, um, at, at my PhD in Ohio. And I almost forgot to mention it, but I did also sort of track copperheads a little. I had a friend, Evan Carter, who was working on his master's in southeastern Indiana and was looking for someone to track copperheads because I think he was shorthanded. And I was like, hey, I, I know the park you're tracking them at. I love, I've, I've looked for them there for years. I'd love to come out and help whenever I can. So I got to kind of do that. Uh, I would have a day of going out and doing stuff with crawfish frogs. And then in the last few hours of daylight, I'd try to rush out to this park just to the south and track copperheads for a few hours. So I had a lot more energy then than I do now. I don't know how I did that many hours of tracking things, but I couldn't do that now. It's funny you mentioned Evan Carter, too, because we just had Dr. Jordan on. I believe Evan was a former Jordan student or at least a Jordan King. I know he, he worked with Bruce. Yeah, he worked yeah. with Dr. King. And mm -hmm. they, I know Dr. Jordan published a paper on copperheads with Evan, and then he co-advised one of my lab mates when I was there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Evan, Evan was was one of those people. Who was, was I mean, still is one of those people who's very prolific and just has 
the bound he probably has maintained more of his boundless energy than I did for this kind of exploration. But uh, the guy is a, a wealth of knowledge, um, and was uh, I learned a lot from him. So then, where did you where did you end up next? So you worked that position, and then were you looking to were you still an undergrad at that time, or? Yeah, so I was an undergrad when I was doing the copperhead tracking, the crawfish frog tracking in my my two years of working for the hardwood ecosystem experiment. And then I think it was towards the end of my time as an undergraduate, you know, I, I was connected with this wildlife refuge because that's where we did our crawfish frog work. And they um, were having a barbecue, I think. And someone who had formerly been a biologist at that wildlife refuge was back in town and was just happened to be at that barbecue uh, they were now stationed at Mingo National Wildlife Refuge, I believe, as the assistant manager. And so I I kind of knew about Mingo National Wildlife Refuge because I had been going to Snake Road, the sort of um, herping destination spot for anybody that's really into the hobby. It's a, For those who may not be familiar with it, it's a place in southern Illinois where they close a section of road, gravel road every year to allow snakes to safely cross to and from their hibernacula. A lot of them are cottonmouths and uh, you know a lot of water snakes and that kind of thing. But it's a really unique area. There's there's a similar kind of habitat and area just sort of to the west in southeastern Missouri called Mingo National Wildlife Refuge. But it's not got the same road closure stuff. It's more just a big wildlife refuge that has a lot of the same habitat. So uh, this guy worked there at the time. And I was familiar enough with it that I felt, I guess, comfortable just sort of rattling off a bunch of stuff about Mingo and how cool I thought it would be to look at the salamanders and how they deal with the kind of artificial water levels they maintain at Mingo. And he, I think, sort of offhandedly said, well, he said, uh, you looking for, a, you know, if you're looking for a master's, I can, you know, send an email to a, a guy I know at uh, Missouri State and see if he's going to take anybody on. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for a master's. And so he got me in touch with Brian Green at Missouri State University who ended up being my advisor and having space for me in his lab. And I think I initially went with the mindset I was going to work with cottonmouths, but then I ultimately ended up doing some work with uh, mostly sirens, but also newts and mole salamanders at Mingo National Wildlife Refuge, sort of trapping different kinds of wetlands, some that they really heavily altered and maintained the water levels on artificially, others that were more, more natural. Nothing on that refuge is entirely natural in its hydro period, but some were more natural. And the idea was we were just seeing if salamanders were you know, more or less likely to occupy some of these wetlands that were really heavily altered and had their hydro periods be really artificial or not. And uh, and so that's that sort of launched me into my master's, which felt like a blur. It was, uh, I guess, just two years, but it felt like it went really fast and it's a lot of fun. So was that work with salamanders, was that during your master's or did that lead up to it? Yeah, so the the work with salamanders was my master's, and I think, I guess I hadn't really done, well, I, I'd set up a drift fence and, you know, uh, counted salamanders that fell in pit traps, uh, or were actually, I think they were funnel traps we used, so that was my only real contact with doing non-just like surveying and photographing salamanders. So yeah, that was during my master's was was doing this aquatic trapping. And we actually used drift fences, but in the water. So we had like swamp aquatic drift fences with funnel traps along them. Um, we were hoping to be able to look for uh, amphiumas, which are sort of, uh, uh, I should probably explain some of this stuff. So sirens are kind of an eel-like salamander with external gills. Uh, they get about I think two, maybe two and a half feet long. They're not huge. And they have 
I guess, a much larger cousin that's sort of distantly related called an amphiuma that gets like three feet long, much bigger, big old voracious predator with real powerful jaws. And we were hoping to be able to sample these amphiumas, which were much rarer in southeast Missouri than sirens. But I think we caught like five. So we caught, I think, probably a couple hundred sirens. So that was a much better sample size to be able to talk about than the five amphiumas we caught. And were you doing like minnow traps and stuff like that? Yeah. Or? Yeah, we had, we called them box traps, which were these homemade big flat sort of chicken wire traps with funnels on the front that would go at the end of the fences. And then we put your standard minnow traps just along the fence. And they both caught salamanders pretty well. They also both caught cottonmouths fairly well, which was, I, I always, whenever I'm trying to explain to people that snakes aren't nearly as sort of mean or out to get them as they think, I always recount stories of dealing with cottonmouths there because I got probably way too desensitized to cottonmouths because they were one of the most common snakes there to the point where I was just sort of gently scooting them off of traps with my boots. Uh, and they would just sort of flash their mouth open and then just, you know, swim away. But they would, it was a big pain when they'd get in the funnel traps because then you have to sort of like pop, try to pop the trap open and then throw it in front of you. So it has pl plenty of space to get out without being too close to you. Oh man, I, yeah, I've had actually the only time I've ever seen cottonmouths was on snake road. Um, it was yeah. the first time I'd ever seen them and they're flashing their white mouths at me, but that was about it. All, all, um, all bark, no bite, but yeah, yeah I can't much. imagine trying to, I had a hard enough time, like extracting, like snapping turtles from traps. I can't imagine trying to pull out something that's actually venomous from a trap like that. Yeah, I mostly tried to just, the goal was always to just get the trap open and, and give them as much time as they needed to extricate themselves. But even sort of with like my fingertips trying to open up the trap and keep my fingers out of where conceivably a fang could go through one of the holes and get me. And I, I was probably pretty safe because I think the angle was not very good for them being able to actually get me. But it, it always felt a little risky, at least at the beginning. I had a friend who did some, I think it was turtle trapping in southern Illinois. And they did talk about like they would use the mesh promar traps and trying to get mm -hmm. cotton mouths out of there when they like twist it up. And I was like, oh, just seems like yeah. such a nightmare. Yeah. You so you're talking about the mesh promar funnel traps. Yeah. Those that was about half of what we used. So it was the same deal. Not fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't. Uh. And were, yeah. were you baiting your traps or? Uh, I was trying to think if we try, so mostly not, I was trying to think if we started trying to do it, I think mostly not. And I, I think the part of the mindset behind, I think we tried to do it initially, especially in hopes of getting amphium and it just wasn't really doing anything other than bringing a lot of fish and crayfish into the traps. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that we, we were, the hope was that the drift fence would be enough to not have to bait them. And the drift fence did seem to really increase our catch rate because the first year we just threw traps out and we caught things, but I think the drift fence really brought up our catch rate quite a bit. Yeah. I always wonder about this when I was, when I was living in North Carolina, I did some work trapping news river water dogs, but mm -hmm. people would always tell us that Anfumas love Vienna sausages. And I, I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what people would always say is like, oh, if you want to catch amphiumas, you got to use Vienna sausages. And I thought it was Maybe so, so strange. They're, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think they're probably scavengers. I don't know a whole lot about their natural history, but I they certainly look pretty well equipped to kill things. But I imagine they wouldn't pass by a stinky dead thing as well, like a Vienna sausage. <laughs> that's hilarious. And so 
after your master's, did you know that you wanted to, like, right away, did you know that you wanted to get a PhD? And, you know, how did that kind of go? I think, you know, it's funny. I don't think I was ever enthusiastically all in for the academic route. I think I, I wanted, like I said, is that from a young age, I wanted to be Steve Irwin. Then I really just wanted to be like a herpetologist, whatever that meant. I just wanted to work with the animals and and have fun and learn about them and, and get to study them. And I think that, you know, I really, I really had a great undergraduate experience and I had a outstanding mentor and advisor in Dr. Carnes who kind of modeled for me what a great teacher and mentor could be. And I think that really gave me a path to want to be that for people. And so that was probably in my undergraduate when I, I wanted to be a mentor, but I still wasn't like, oh, I want to be a professor at a university. So you know, I, was, I wanted to be a mentor and teacher and, and get to work with animals. And I kind of understood that that probably meant I was going academic track. And so the, the master's thing happened so quick that I think I sort of um, I sort of was just sort of on track. I was like, yeah, I'll do the PhD next and then then see what happens. I wasn't I think through my undergrad and master's, I was just writing a lot of good uh, luck and privilege and passion. And I wasn't thinking that hard about what was coming next because I sort of always assumed everything would, would work out and be not so hard. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it worked out then. So you uh, left your master's and then started a PhD program. How long after that? So I the, the route between my master's ending and my PhD program that I eventually finished is kind of a winding, you know, that that's why I said I thought that everything would work out very easily and be very straightforward. And it, it was the gap between my master's and finishing my PhD. that was fairly long because I finished my master's in 2012. And then I didn't finish my PhD until 2020. Uh, and my, my PhD did not take me eight years. So it was, there was a gap in there. Um, I, I almost went to do a PhD in Arkansas but instead, I ended up coming back to Indiana and kind of working for a summer as uh, with the with the wildlife refuge I had done crawfish frog research at because um, I, I sort of ended up in the summertime and I needed a place to go. And I, I reached out and was fortunately able to get on as an intern that summer at that wildlife refuge. And that was really good. Uh, and then after that, I started a PhD position. I, I guess I'll keep details vague just for the sake of maybe being a little bit more open about what a bad experience in a PhD looks like. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start by just saying that, you know, I started a PhD position and it was not the right position for me. I stayed with it for a year and a half before I left and then worked as an interpretive naturalist for, I think, about a year and a half uh, at a state park and loved that, was basically at least mentally on track to do that as my new career path. Uh, after having a really bad experience in in my first go to PhD, and I I really only came back to academia because of the the sort of the perfect position lined up. Um, I reached out to Dr. Bill Peterman at Ohio State and got talking to him. Uh, he was I think fairly recently had started there as a professor, and had had in the works potentially some timber rattlesnake research coming down the pipe. And I said, well, you know, I, I worked with them years ago and I kind of know how to do that, I hope. <laughs> and uh, said, I'm, I'm possibly still interested in going back to academia. And so I kept in touch for a while. And as that position sort of developed and, and it became clear that it was going to be an option, uh, we, we sort of had conversations and I, that eventually ended up being the position that I came back to in 2016 
which is when we, uh, my wife and I moved to Ohio and I started my PhD at Ohio State. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you, even though it's probably not the most fun to talk about, shared the part of the the bad experience with the PhD because I think a lot of people don't, when they think about, oh, I'm going to go right into a PhD, they don't even think of that as an option. And especially people don't think of like, you can leave one and then start another and yes. you know, have that go well and be successful. So I think that's a really cool example that... You know, it's not always all or nothing and it doesn't have to work out perfectly. Like there's, yeah, there's always I, more options. And and I'll say this. I think it was on a previous podcast. I was listening to one of yours that I think maybe Dan, you mentioned something about it's always good to talk to everybody in the lab before you start at a PhD position. And I'll say this is the same for masters, but I think it's especially true for a PhD that you are going to be working very closely with that advisor for four or five, probably five years. And if that relationship is not a good one, that is a really long time. And if it's a toxic one, if it's a really bad relationship, that is a nightmare. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, my first go at a PhD program was like probably the worst year and a half of my life. It was awful. And it really hammered home for me that you, you need to pick the person you work with really carefully if they have a reputation that is fairly widely known for being really difficult and unpleasant and not nice, don't go into that program. And uh, I think I, I had had a full life of, oh, experiences are great. Things come easy for me. I get along with everybody. I, I've heard some rumblings about this or that, but I'm sure it's fine. Like, don't if you hear rumblings, understand that it's probably the tip of the iceberg because people people who are really toxic tend to have uh, a lot of people around them that don't want to be honest about how toxic they are and so yeah without without giving any more detail than that and staying fairly vague i'll just say be very careful about who you choose for your advisor especially if you're going phd long-term route because that's a really important relationship and it dictates to some extent your future opportunities i mean if even if you can get through it it's hard to know how to springboard into a position a job position after there because you need the continued support of whoever your advisor and mentor is which I have fortunately had great support all the way through with Bill Peterman. Uh, he's He was a great PhD advisor, uh, continues to be a friend and, and mentor to me. So, you know, that that's an important choice. Um, I think when you do your undergrad, everybody's really focused on the college, you know, what college you're going to go to. But when you go into graduate school, it really becomes about who your advisor is. Um, I mean, sure, the college is important, the location's important, but your advisor's really critical when you make your grad school choices um, for not just that school time, but maybe for your future too. Yeah, and that's that's such great advice. And Dr. Peterman is awesome. He's an absolutely awesome guy. Like he did a workshop for us at Purdue, at PFW when I was there, you know, talking about resistance GA and... Mm -hmm. um, he did a lot of a lot of emails back and forth uh, with me trying to troubleshoot and get stuff to work. And yeah, so just a, a great guy. So, yeah, awesome. yeah, it was a really good experience being in his lab. All right. So you um, started your PhD at Ohio State University in the Peterman yes. lab. Do you want to talk a mm -hmm. little bit about uh, your research there? Yeah, sure. So I came in, I was fortunate to come in on a fairly substantial project that was just being started to try to better understand timber rattlesnakes in Ohio. And 
I think the big impetus for this project was wanting to better understand the interaction between forest management and the rattlesnake population. There had been concerns years ago leading up to this about timber harvesting and prescribed fire, because those are both things that happen in, in nearly all of the places that still have timber rattlesnakes in, in Ohio. And so there was concern that they might be detrimental to the snakes. And there, there wasn't really evidence to say one way or the other really firmly. And, and I think they wanted to really fund a project to, to address that pretty thoroughly. So we set out to try to track uh, enough rattlesnakes over a long enough period of time to be able to speak to how they interacted with a landscape that had been subject to both prescribed fire and timber harvesting. I think we were also hoping to be able to talk about how they reacted, you know, in the moments to timber harvesting and fire, you know, how if they burn one year, what is what happens that year and the next, but they actually didn't do any fire or timber harvesting in all of the six years we were there tracking rattlesnakes. So we didn't get to do that, but we did sort of develop a pretty a uh, comprehensive history of the landscape and when different plots of land had been timbered and when different plots, plots had been burned. So we could sort of do this correlative assessment of, of what parts of the landscape timber rattlesnakes seem to use and avoid and how long ago those had been managed with fire or timber harvesting. Uh, and really, I think the biggest take home from the whole project was that there wasn't a really clear pattern related to the management history of rattlesnake site use. They, they kind of used everything. They move a lot. They, there were some snakes that really loved hanging out in clear cuts, as I'm sure you remember, Emma, the snakes that like the clear cuts, cause that's not fun to track them into those really dense clear cuts. And, uh, and there were snakes that loved like really mature uh, sort of music river bottoms where there were big old trees that hadn't been cut in a hundred years. So it, it just varied based on the snake and its personality and the time of year and what it was doing and all kinds of factors, but not a, not a real clear avoidance of any kind of burned or timbered area. Um, which I think a lot of folks who were wanting to continue doing a lot of that management were probably uh, happy to hear that um, there didn't seem to be a big conflict of interest there. Yeah. And for our listeners, I met Andrew because uh, he hired me as a technician to work for him for a summer on this project, which was just so thrilling that I even got hired. Like I was actually shocked because this is just such a cool project. And it was actually, I'd never seen a rattlesnake before and I'm obsessed with rattlesnakes. So it was just really cool to just start on this project with this incredible species which I think is still my favorite species like I miss the timber rattlesnakes I really do me too Um, too. yeah yeah and so in you know that position really like paved the way for me I mean Andrew I don't yeah I, I didn't tell you this but when I was interviewing for my position uh for my master's position I was talking to my who would become my advisor cat about like my experience and I was mm-hmm. just talking about like my various field jobs and how you know intense the field conditions are but despite that I still love it you know mm-hmm. didn't dissuade me and she told me later on that one of the reasons she accepted me into her lab was because she knew I could handle rough field work <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I'm was, glad yeah yeah she was like okay if you still want to be in this after like walking through clear cuts and getting cut up by blackberry and 
uh, you know, circling around trying to find the same snake, then if you still want to do this after that, then, <laughs> then yeah, you're really into it. And yeah, yeah, rough field days, but God, like finding, finally, you know, getting to a snake after tracking it for hours was like the best thing. Yeah. And I tell people about this all the time whenever the topic of animal intelligence comes up and how each of these snakes had their own distinct personality. Some were super docile and gentle and others like uh, Stanley, I think it was super temperamental and always, always uh, annoyed to see you. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. Like they were in all kinds of habitats, swamp habitats, like clear cuts, deep, dense forests. I mean, yeah, it was really fascinating to see how these snakes moved and, you know, what was driving their behavior. Well, and I'm, I'm so glad to hear that sort of your perseverance and your uh, passion for it in, in reflecting on that experience. And this is part of what helped get you your next position, because I mean, honestly, that's a huge part of why I hired you in the first place. I really wanted people that would be passionate and I, I knew how rough this was going to be. And it's, it is, I'm sure you can attest to this. It is not a job you can just like get through if you're not enjoying it a lot and you don't enjoy every moment, but like you have to have this, this sort of underlying, I'm, this is important to me kind of feeling even on those days that I hate this, I hate this, I hate this is the whole day. Like you have to have to be able to come at the end of the day and be like, yeah, today really sucked, but I, this is important and I still really appreciate what I'm doing. Um, and I think that's so much of this field and field work gets to that point is that, you know, a lot of it's tough and oftentimes the, everything around environmental conservation and preserving these species can be, can beat you down a lot because it's often fighting an uphill battle and often, uh, as you said, you know, physically challenging and, and emotionally and mentally challenging to gather the data to fight that uphill battle. And so I think having that that underlying passion and interest in the field, uh, to me, when I was looking for people to, to help us with this project was so much more important than like vast experiences tracking venomous snakes. Because I know I hear that a lot, like, oh, I want people to have venomous snake experience or, oh, we're doing tortoise. You have to have done tortoise. Work. Like, it doesn't matter. You can learn how to, you can learn the intricacies of this species or that species or this group of animals. But I think it's much harder to learn or teach that underlying value system that really, you know, allows you to stick through some of the hardships and feel that this is important. Um, and I, yeah, that was great to have you on board because that definitely always buoyed us up, right? That, that helped us stay positive and, and keep going along when things got rough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that's a really good point too about being able to, I, I don't know, like, I think you can, can kind of get pigeonholed into a certain position or field if you're just going from the same species or same, you know, similar species to the next, like, oh, I want them to have venomous snake experience, and then I want them to have this specific experience. But having so many different field experiences has, like, helped me so much. And so mm -hmm. I think that's really important for anyone that's bringing on like junior scientists and students that are just starting out in this field. It's like you need a diversity of experiences. I mean, you don't necessarily need to need it depending on where you're going, um, what field you're going into, but at least that was really valuable for me. And now I feel like I can very confidently work with venomous animals, um, at least in the U S I don't know about uh, <laughs> Australia. Dan's Dan's not here right now, but 
he deals with stuff that could kill me within 30 minutes. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I'll stick with my pit vipers. They're nice and slow and pretty. I mean, they have a really fast strike, but not much else about them's fast. So like they're, they're easy to work around because if you just sort of stay out of a particular distance, you, you know, they're not going to like real quickly close the gap or do something really surprising most of the time. So I, I don't know how people work with big cobras and, things that are basically like racers, but with venom, I, I don't, I wouldn't want to work with snakes like that. It just sounds scary. And I love racers, yeah. but I, I'm glad they're not venomous. Absolutely. And so, yeah, after your PhD, you stayed in the Peter, Peterman lab to do, a, oh no, you went to a different lab to do a postdoc. No, I stayed in the Peterman <laughs> lab. Yeah. I was, okay. I was really lucky to be able to kind of pick up with a phase two of a project that was already ongoing. Uh, Evan Amber had sort of piloted and and done his masters on this adrift array this uh a it's an acronym a h d r i f t it i'm not going to even remember what all of the things are for at this point but basically it's uh, oh actually i think i can adapt hunt drift adapted hunt drift for the adapt hunt drift fence uh yeah adapt Adapted hunt drift fence, I think is what it is. So it's if any if you're familiar with what a drift fence is, which is basically a like a silt fence, like a construction fence that you might put up and then you can put traps along it, sort of like I talked about earlier. This is that, except instead of trying to actually capture the animal, you're trying to use cameras to take a picture of them as they pass through your bucket. And so he piloted using this to try to detect the federally threatened Massasauga in Ohio. And I was fortunate that the timing of my graduation was sort of just right to jump on and, and do my postdoc uh, doing the phase two of the project that he started, which was sort of just expanding and continuing to try to use this Adrift array system to detect Massasaugas on different lands in Ohio. That's really cool. And were you ever in Northeast Ohio at all? I did not ever go up to Ashtabula County because I, I know that I, are you from Ashtabula originally? Yes, I am. Yeah. Yes. I know that's where some of the research has been done in, in the past in Ohio, but we, I, so the only time I've been to Ashtabula is when I was traveling to get to New York. And I think every time I will travel from New York to the Midwest, I pass through Ashtabula County. That's my experience with that. It's beautiful passing through it's a gorgeous area. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. It's, I didn't know until thanks a few years ago that there are even massasaugas present within like pr pretty close distance to me where i grew up and yeah yeah i that blew my mind i was like this whole time and not that you can just go and find them they're very well protected but yeah that that blew my mind i never knew that but still haven't seen one and it is i'm dying to go see some massasaugas and i know i'll get around to it one of these days when I'm back east, but well, really, I'm, really I'm cool. hoping I'm hoping to continue doing some work with them here in New York, but there's a lot less of them in New York, and so we're I'll I'll get back to you in a year or two whether that's going to happen. But um, my hope is I can keep working with Massasaugas because I think so. My work with Timbers was really rewarding and interesting, and I, I loved every minute of it. But in terms of you know, in the field of conservation, there there's sort of this thought of prioritizing the most need things, and I think especially as you're coming up through your education, you know, prioritize what you can access doing research with. But now that I'm getting to this point in my career where I can have a little more space to try to pick and choose what projects I might want to take on, I'm, I'm interested in trying to kind of do the most good where it's the most needed. And Massasaugas, 
uh, in there. So, and also to clarify for any listeners who haven't heard of them, they're a small rattlesnake species. So they're a Massasauga rattlesnake, kind of a pygmy rattlesnake of sorts. And their conservation situation makes timber rattlesnakes look like they're doing really well. And if you're not familiar with timber rattlesnakes, they're not generally doing really well in a lot of areas. But Massasaugas are doing so terribly poorly that they're listed on the endangered species list. So they're federally threatened. Um, it, Ohio has probably at least one of the better populations left throughout their range. Most of the populations in Ohio are not particularly large or doing particularly well, but they do have uh, in, in one part of the state where they're doing all right. Most of the populations that are doing fairly well are in Michigan. They're sort of a Great Lakes species. Um, I'm probably going to miss getting their whole range right, but basically Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, uh, historically, I think they're still in Missouri and Illinois, um, Wisconsin, I believe as well and Ontario. So that's, that's most of their range. I probably missed a state or two. Um, but New York's right here at the edge of their distribution, but most of those States, there's just barely any left, maybe one or two populations. New York has two populations. Ohio has a handful. Indiana has who knows how many, I, I'm not sure there's been a real recent uh, attempt to quantify how many of them are left, but this is a species where we're losing populations every few years. I mean, they're, they're blinking out at places in Ohio where we study them. It appears that a couple populations are either on the verge of blinking out or have blinked out just in the last decade or so. So uh, this is a species that, you know, right now in real time is disappearing. And um, you had mentioned, you know, you grew up very close to them and never knew it. And that's pretty typical for Massasaugas because most of the populations are in like a single field on a nature preserve. So unless you know about that nature preserve and that field where that where those 30 snakes are still existing, you wouldn't know that they're anywhere because they're just living on little postage stamp habitats. They, they need these kind of wetland, marsh, prairie complexes. And that's a really bad cocktail of habitats to need because prairie grasslands and wetlands are all among the most degraded and lost habitats in North America. So they, they're really relying, I think that combination of wetlands and grasslands it's a really unlucky combination to need those two habitats together because those are increasingly rare, mostly because those are generally areas that make really good farmland. So most of the Massasauga's historic range has been lost to farmland. Um, some areas, urban and other kinds of development, but it's mostly a loss to farming areas. So they're, they're protected on these mostly small postage stamp sized pieces of land in a lot of areas. Yeah. Thank you for giving background on that. Cause yeah, I mean, Again, like you said, I would have never known, and which is, which is, I mean, unfortunate. There, there's just such a small population there, this just remnant population. But I'm glad that there is so much effort to protect them. It gives me some hope, you know, that people are working very hard to protect the species. But yeah, yeah, it's really tragic. And yeah, to, to brighten it up a little bit, there is a lot of currently right now a lot of really good. Uh, initiative and momentum to, especially in Ohio, to try to restore habitat, protect populations. There's a lot of folks, uh, you know, I think when I left was sort of felt like the momentum was just really getting going. And so I'm, I'm very hopeful that what is happening in Ohio can be mirrored and replicated in, in other states. And I know there's other states that are, are doing a lot as well. But I, I think, I think people are really really do understand uh, some people really understand how dire their situation is. And there's starting to be some coalescence around that in a lot of places. Um, so yeah, I, I'm encouraged, but still, you know, it's still pretty dire. 
And well, you mentioned that you were hoping to do a little bit of work with Massasaugas in New York. Um, do you want to talk about where you are now in this position now and like how how you got here? Yeah, sure. So I um, I am currently a an assistant professor at St. John Fisher University. So I've kind of completed my uh, students to academia, you know, fi final, I mean, it's not really my final stage of academia because of course there's tenure and there's promotions and everything, but I'm, I'm hopefully at my kind of terminal position. I, I really love where I am and I'm hoping to stay there for a long time. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy to be here. I just, this is my first semester. So I just moved here. We just moved here in July, I think. And I've been working now We just, we're right at our midterms. So I'm kind of halfway through my first semester and it is a smaller uh, university. I say university, it was a college just a year and a half ago. So they've recently made the transition to formerly being a university, um, but it's still small. I think they've got 3,500 students somewhere in that ballpark, undergrads, undergrad focused college. So it's, it's really almost twice the size of my undergraduate college, but still small, um, kind of a liberal arts, small vibe to it. And that's really where I wanted to end up because that was where I started. It's where I really enjoyed my college experience. And I wanted to, as much as I love research, I didn't want to end up with an R1 where most of my sort of evaluation hinged on pulling in big grants and doing lots of research and publishing a lot. I, I don't really like the publisher parish grind or the being under the gun to pull in grants. I think that also to some extent can be a bit limiting on what sort of research you can do. And I really like just sort of exploratory stuff. Like if I have a question, I want to just go do something with it, you know, get some students and go sort of surveys and, and do whatever. And if you're really hoping to publish in, in big journals and pull in big grants, you kind of have to try to find where the money is to do that. So um, I, I'm hoping to focus more on a lot of local issues, especially here to Western New York and my research moving forward. But a lot of my work is going to be focused on teaching and mentoring students. And uh, I really love that. Yeah, congratulations. That's so great. When I saw your Facebook post about that, I was so thrilled. Um, Thank you. Thank that you. you find your place. And yeah, so are you teaching classes right now? Are you, I mean, it's your first semester, so I imagine a lot of this is brand new. Um, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, are you teaching classes? Are you already bringing on students or what's that looking like? So I am teaching classes. I'm at 9.05 tomorrow morning is my first one again. Wait, it's Wednesday, right? No, wait. No, tomorrow's Thursday. That's my afternoon class. So yes, I've got two different courses. I've got a couple sections of one. So yeah, I've got, a, I think, a fairly full or normal teaching load this semester that keeps me pretty busy. I've got I'm teaching environmental issues and I'm teaching general bio three, which is sort of the ecology, uh, ecology evolution part of the core bio course at this university. And that's great. Uh, I don't currently have like a lab or students in a lab. I'm, you know, I'm sort of figuring out how that works here. Uh, and I think that takes a little bit of time. I'm hoping that next summer I can have students working with me on some kind of research. So I'm I'm a little bit under a gun to get students who are who are ready and, and interested in doing that and hoping I can find some. So if any of you Fisher students are out there listening to this and this is the kind of thing that interests you, please stop by my office soon. We can chat. But yeah, I, I'm very eager to be able to do research with students, but I, I love teaching as well. So it's uh, like I said, I think starting was, I guess, emotionally, mentally kind of difficult because I carried so much imposter syndrome from my bad 
experience in academia years ago that it took a while to felt like I belonged and wasn't an imposter. And I'm not entirely there yet, but I, I definitely can go through a day now and feel like I'm deserved to be there and I'm supposed to be there and I'm not going to get kicked out right away. Uh, so that's, that's a good, that's a good change. It's a more comfortable day in and day out. And I've got to say this, the department I'm in is fantastic. And all of my colleagues have really made it that much easier. And, and I don't feel like I'm far enough in this to really offer very good advice on this, but as much as I would say to like, get, get a sense for who your advisor is going into graduate school. If you make it to the sort of end of the academia trajectory and are applying for jobs and you have some options, I'd say definitely get a sense for what the sort of collegiate atmosphere is get a sense for who you'd be working with. Because I think I just got really lucky that I'm working with a great department. They've got some really cool support systems to like onboard new professors and help them get started. And that's been really helpful. So yeah, it, I, it, I'm not, I've not felt like I'm just sort of thrown into it as much as I thought I would be been a lot more support and that's been great. Yeah, that's fantastic. And that's really important too. And I feel the imposter syndrome. So every job of every, you know, program, academic program I've been in every job, I'm like the imposter syndrome is so real. So I get it. And I think a lot of people feel that way. And I think it's, uh, I mean, we mask it for the most part. And so I think it's really important and this kind of segues into my next question, but um, I think it's important for people starting out into this field to know that a lot of us feel this way, even, you know, professors at a university like Andrew, like, yes, very you know, much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So in terms of, you know, advice, you're, do you have any um, advice for people that are interested in starting in this field, you know, who, might be interested in pursuing an undergrad or just getting started? Yeah, uh, I, I guess I would say this. I was told at a few points in my career path to not like that I should just do something else. Uh, early on, I was told, don't be a herpetologist. It doesn't pay the bills. You know, do something that makes money and do this for fun. And I just I knew that for me personally, I was so obsessed with this stuff that I just couldn't have any other kind of job. It had to be something in this arena. So I stuck with it. And it, you know, it, it bills are harder to pay because this is the field I, cho I chose. You know, it's hard through graduate school. It's still hard as a professor you know, you're you're going to be going to school for a lot longer and making a lot less money than than people who went to school for less time than you did. So that that is a thing you have to have the passion to really follow that through. But it's an incredibly rewarding field. And, you know, if you're passionate and you're in it, you deserve to be there. Stick with it. I, I would say you're going to have people who tell you don't do this or you're not cut out for it or whatever. And just, you know, don't listen. If you know that you have a passion and you want to be there, then you deserve to be there and follow through with it. You can find a place within this field where you can be happy, where you can be successful. Just stick with it. That's great advice. And I think that's something that I needed to hear when I was first starting, because I'm lucky that I ended up getting these positions and getting support, but I I was kind of told the same thing. You know, I was lucky that my parents were like, you should be a herpetologist. Like they're very supportive. But for the most part, it was like, I don't know, generally uh, people in, that are not in the field specific to herpetology or even ecology uh, are like, what are you going to do with that? And so I think it's really important advice for people to really follow these things, especially for you know, wildlife that's imperiled, like rattlesnake species. I mean, 
they need us. They need someone. So yeah, great advice. Thank you. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And then, so towards the end of the episode, we always ask what some of your favorites are. So do you have any favorite? I mean, you've had so many field positions and done so much research, but do you have any favorite field or research moments or stories, whether they are funny or just memorable? Yeah, I've got a lot of fun memories. Um, I think working with rattlesnakes, both in Indiana and in Ohio, I had these fun, isolated memories that sort of sent me down this road of getting really interested in animal cognition, you know, non-human animal cognition, which is not uh, not a research interest of mine necessarily. Like I'm not a professional in that field, but I'm I spent a lot of time watching lectures and reading stuff about. Uh, I mean, I think also just going through really rough stuff and then having you know mental health issues will will get you really interested in psychology. So I've I've been interested in psychology for humans generally, but also just understanding the minds as best we can of non-humans. And I have these fun experiences that sort of get me thinking. You, you never really know what happened, but you make you think about stuff. And I think you mentioned something about with timber rattlesnakes and personalities. So I, like, for instance, I remember in Indiana one time I was sitting on the ground, you know, writing down some data about a timber rattlesnake I just found. She was sitting across a log and she came over sort of just, you know, nothing. And as Emma, as you I'm sure remember, like these rattlesnakes don't get up and move around much. It, it, they sit for hours on end. So when they get out of, when they're coiled and they decide to do something else, it's a big thing. It's probably the only time they did that all day. And so I had just sat down a few meters away from this snake and she uncoiled and slithered towards me and set her head on a log and just sort of looked at me. And I don't know if she was seeing me or looking at me or what she was doing, but at the very least, and she would tongue flick a little, I thought, there's got to be some level of just like curiosity or wanting to understand me better and, and to not try to interpret it too much beyond that, but just to think, you know, that's, that's interesting enough that that snake had the thought that I should go look at what that is, but wasn't so scared of me that that was like a dumb thing for it to do. And, and I think a lot of people who track, especially timber rattlesnakes will say, they get habituated to it. They they get to know what you're doing, and they don't understand at all what you're doing. But they they get to know that a, a you know whatever we are walks up to them every so often and just stands there and does stuff and walks away and nothing bad happens. And so I think it's just sort of a conditioned response that this person stands over them periodically and nothing bad happens. So they they get less and less fearful that something bad is going to happen. And then I think is when interesting stuff starts happening because then they just sort of, if they're curious or they just want to investigate or learn more. Now, of course, when you catch them and then have to like put a new transmitter in, then they hate you for a while and they're very scared of you for a while. But then it, I, I think it sort of rehabituates over time. Like the only time I would ever hear them rattle is within a couple of weeks of doing surgery on them. They, they really would then rattle at you from a distance. Or if you pick them up, when you pick them up, they, they start rattling. But to, to do any sort of response from a distance was rare. There was another time I saw one of our a female rattlesnake in Ohio and she was had her head off the ground, was just moving through the forest with her head off the ground, which is a behavior that's often referred to as periscoping in snakes. A lot of really visual species will do this uh, where we know they they see pretty well. So they'll actually lift their head up the ground to look around and, and see above whatever would normally be blocking their view. And I, I had never heard of timber rattlesnakes being a visual enough species to do this, at least not on a regular basis. So to just sort of track this uh, female and watch her 
do this as she moved around she was going up a hill she'd lift her head up she'd look around almost like she was getting a new direction and she'd move forward so just to see these little glimpses of things like huh what exactly what's going on there um there there were all sorts of things with the timber rattlesnakes especially that were like that um and i think those were some of my most memorable things because that was the closest i feel like i've ever gotten to going beyond the surface level with these wild animals beyond just oh that's a really cool animal and i appreciate its ecology too you know you're an individual doing things that i want to know more about you know you you have thoughts maybe not super complex ones but you have thoughts in that brain that i wouldn't expect you to have and i want to know why you're having those so you know that that was a fairly frequent thing that i think was was always something that interested me with the rattlesnake work is just you know, nine out of 10 times, 90 out of a hundred times you track a snake and it sits there the whole time and you leave and you appreciate its beauty, but that's it. But every now and then the snake does something interesting that you're not expecting. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I felt that working on this project and, you know, you spend so much time out there alone with these animals and you get to see them. Yeah. Like express their personalities or do these odd things you're like, what's going on up there? Like, why are you doing this? And it's really, I had such an emotional connection with them because mm -hmm. of these behaviors and their personalities and the way each of them react, responded a bit differently to us. Like I said earlier in the episode, some were very docile and others just wanted nothing to do with me. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I feel very lucky to have had that like kind of connection with an animal, even if it you know, didn't want me there. I was, I was having yeah, a great yeah. time, like, yeah. you know, kind of making this connection. But yeah, welcome back, Dan. Thank you. Rattlesnakes are awesome. That's rattlesnakes rule. That's, that's what I, I agree. Say. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah, I think following up a little bit on on what Emma, you were just talking about. I, you know, I got very attached to all the animals in our study, and this is you know, there's this stereo. I, I don't like a lot of stereotypes about science, and I think a lot of scientists don't like stereotypes about science, but this idea that we need to be sort of cold, detached observers is, is almost nonsense. Like it's, I, I think it's one of these things where you're trying to ignore a bias rather than actually address it. And, and I think sometimes biases like being attached to a study animal, if you're sort of merely an observer and you're tracking them and recording data, you're not really interfering with them because of your attachment that often giving them names, you know, it's, you're not, the name is not sort of changing how you're interpreting their behavior. Um, so to me, these are things that were worthwhile to me. They were worthwhile to all the outreach efforts we had for the project. Uh, but I, I think there's a, there's a lot of really interesting moral and philosophical things with research. And for me, I'm now at a point where I'm sort of, I just don't want to do things that harm the animals anymore, even if there's good to come out of it. And I think the telemetry work is, is great. We learned a lot, but you know, in the process, animals were stressed, animals were harmed. I think Emma, you came in one of, one of your first days in the field, I think was when my favorite snake died, Daryl. Uh, I think that was in April. Weren't, I think, weren't you there when we found him dead near or dying near his den? Yeah. Yeah. That was heartbreaking. I think he was the yeah. first timber rattlesnake I saw like ever, oh, yeah. ever in my life. Yeah, yeah. That was like the first, my first or second day was he was still alive. And, <laughs> but, but yeah, that was yeah. really hard to see. And, and Daryl was a snake we had been tracking for, I think three or four years at that point, however, however long the study had been going at least three years, I think. 
And he, I had named him after my advisor. So, you know, if, if you want to get really attached, name, name the snake after someone that was important to you in, in your life. So my undergrad advisor was Daryl Carnes. Uh, so I named him after him. He was the first big male we caught. I sort of got to witness all kinds of really cool things in his life, uh, breeding. And uh, I don't think I could see him do any combat, but breeding and lots of interesting movements and behavior. And, you know, here he, I found him outside of his den in the spring, sort of listless and laid out. And when I picked him up, he still had a response and, and rolled and moved and then blood came out of his mouth. And that was the end. And that was that was so tough. Um, and I think that that day was sort of the start or, or continuing of this realization that um, we had snakes that were having issues, especially with snake fungal disease. And this was definitively exacerbated by what we were doing. The transmitters we were putting in the snakes and our time sort of stressing them out was, I'm sure, making it more difficult for them to combat this illness. And as we learn more about snake fungal disease, it seems more and more clear that snakes that get injured, snakes that have extra stress burdens are, are having a worse time with SFD, snake fungal disease. So sort of looking back and realizing that some of the, the illness and mortality we saw in our study was probably wouldn't have been there if we hadn't done anything. And you get to this, this philosophical point or so well, when, when is it worth it to, to gather data? And uh, I'm certainly not questioning whether it was worth it or not to, to do this study. But I think for me personally, that was, I kind of left that study with this feeling that, you know, if I can mostly do really kind of, if I can even spend extra effort to find ways to do more hands-off and, and light sort of uh, intrusive science on these animals from here on out, that's still really informative. I'll be happier then because I think just on a personal level, I'm, I'm not the kind of person that's really good at separating myself from what's going on. I could never be a doctor or a vet or anything that I, I don't have the fortitude to, to deal with that much heartache. And so I think um, for all the good experiences I have, the, I, I'm definitely, I'm happier working with these methods that are a little bit more hands-off, even though I miss being able to get up close and personal with the animals um, because it is really rough to, see these animals brought low or even die from as at least partly as a result of some of the work we're doing i i 100 percent feel that like I, i'm now working in you know the kitrid space and mm. trying to find you know resistance and solutions for wild animals are or, or the frog that we work with in particular is extirpated in the wild from kitrid and oh, wow. You know, we're trying to get it back into the wild, but at the same time, we have to understand, you know, what the kitrid is doing to them and, you yeah. know, how we can treat it and different resistance routes. And yeah, I, I understand how like important it is. It's, it just gets really taxing mentally yeah. some days. So yeah, I a hundred percent feel that. <laughs> yeah. I think that there's, there's. Uh, perhaps a mental or emotional skill to be able to have that separation and, and do work that, that you can sort of weigh as important and needs to be done and, and, you know, deal with the emotional burden that comes along with it. I just don't have that skill very much. So I, I'm going to focus on, you know, I, I like talking to people about things. I like doing outreach and education, and I like doing sort of surveys and studies that are a little bit more hands-off. And I think probably that's, that's more where I'm going to continue heading in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. It's like, I, I really enjoy what I'm doing right now. And like, you know, I understand the value in it, but I think when I'm done with this project i think yeah i want to move out of this space i don't think i have i don't think i have that capacity 
for it. And some of my lab mates and advisors, you know, they're really good at it. And mm -hmm. they're also really good and really patient about, you know, like understanding the, the mental tax and, you know, giving you time to step away after That's you kind of go through stuff. So I've, yeah, I've really yeah. appreciated that, but yeah, I don't know if it's, if it's for me long-term, but yeah. yeah. Well, I think the, the good news for both of us is that there's so many, I mean, technology is only making it easier and easier to be more hands-off through remote sensing and imagery and, you know, uh, eDNA and all kinds of stuff that allows you to gather a whole bunch of data without ever seeing the animal or touching the animal if, if that's what you want to do or very minimally handling if, if you can go that route. Um, and I think that trend is only going to increase. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess transitioning into kind of our wrap up a little more, getting mm -hmm. away from uh, the sad stuff. Do you have a, a favorite field snack or field food after a long day of, of tracking rattlesnakes that is just all you look forward to? Uh, I, I remember my first tech position, we used to keep a box of uh, Nutty Buddy, the little oh, Debbie yeah. bars in the truck for after we finish field work. Fair enough. So yeah, it's ironic too, because I think all the doom and gloom, sad stuff came from like, what's your favorite field experience question. So I, I managed to make that really depressing. So I won't do that for this one. Um, I, I think my favorite field thing has probably changed over the years. When I was a kid going out looking for snakes with my dad, I loved beef jerky. I was a beef jerky guy and that carried on through high school and college, I think, but in graduate school and more recently, I think I'm really, I've got a, a really big sweet tooth. And so I think I always look forward to being able to get to like, I, I think it, uh, when we were doing our rattlesnake work, there was always trying to get to a place that had milkshakes or ice cream, especially on those hot days. That was really big. But I also really appreciate being able to like sit down at a nice diner. There was a nice diner near where we did our rattlesnake work and just have like a, you know, country home cooked kind of meal. So both of those things. And if I can do both at the same time, like have a nice country home cooked meal followed up by pie or cookies or something, then, you know, all the better. Uh, I am, I'm trying to be healthier, but as, as you can probably tell from all that, like being a health food person has never been part of my identity necessarily. <laughs> yeah. Same. And I was even going to say like, yeah, that place we went to in Ohio doing the tomorrow snake work where we got milkshakes was like, yes, that the best the best like that was such a highlight of like after a long brutal day of field work so <laughs> the ones that were there were great <laughs> they were great and that was one of the funny things about that like we had that site that was sort of further north we had the one further north site and then everything else was down south but when we had to go between like a 30 minute drive to get to those two different sites we would pass by that place that had the shakes and so that always made for a great opportunity for like after we were finished with the the stuff up north to stop by the place. And by that time, we really needed the shakes. Uh, so, yeah, that those were that was a very good place to have. It's hard to be at a good diner. Yes, it is. It very much is. There's and less then, and less all the time. Oh, uh, yeah, it's sad. But... It's a disappearing thing. And then probably our, our hardest question to to wrap up. What is your, or do you have a favorite animal? <sighs> that is a hard one. Um, I I probably sort of don't, but if I did, it would be a timber rattlesnake. I mean, I, I think I just don't have any, 
I think if for no other reason than I have gotten to know the lives of, of that type of animal better than anything other than like my cat. So uh, without saying I like my cat, my cat's my favorite animal. I think I would say my favorite species is the timber rattlesnake because I've had, I've had the most in-depth view into their life and uh, they're just a really fascinating and impressive animal. I think I said the same thing in my episode as yeah, that to I remember snake. that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's hard to pick a favorite animal because I love so many species, so many taxa. I love birds and reptiles and amphibians and it's hard to choose, but like yeah, that's the one I feel the most connected to. And I only worked with them for a summer, so I can't imagine, yeah, you have you've an even greater bond. They leave an impression. There's there's something about tracking those animals. And I think any animal you track day in and day out, but there's just something very enigmatic about a timber rattlesnake that leaves an impression. You know, they're, I think they're right up there with like wolves and bear. You know, they're like an apex predator. There's some sort of vibe of an apex predator that is really, uh, and I think their their silence and their calmness is also just something, you know, that they have this power, but that they're just very calm. They're very calm and silent. I mean, everybody thinks rattlesnakes are not silent, but they mostly are. And there's something impressive and just very peaceful about them that mixes with this in sort of imposing power that they have. That's really cool. Yeah, that's an excellent choice. And thank you again so much for coming on. And I guess before we wrap up, do you have any social media you want to plug or do you have a kind of lab site or web page that people that are interested in your research and maybe want to know more can find you? You know, I don't yet. So, I mean, I, I have social media from things I've done in the past. Uh, probably most of the stuff I did uh, was with Zach Trulock and John Buffington, both of whom worked on the Timber Rattlesnake Project. We we worked on this Life Underfoot YouTube channel, which I think is sort of uh, indefinitely uh, on hold for now. We're all sort of scattered to different places at this point, And my career is you know, I, I'm not, I don't really have time to, to do YouTube videos on any kind of regular basis. So that's, that's sort of uh, on hold and off to the side, maybe indefinitely, but there's a lot of, of videos I'm really proud of there that we made uh, life underfoot on YouTube. We also have uh, Instagram and TikTok. Uh, I don't, yeah, TikTok and Instagram, I think life underfoot as well. Um, I don't have a lab page yet. I have, uh, I think I have like my, my, phone number and email and stuff on on the faculty website but that's about it i'm hoping to get a lab page up over the winter and maybe by next summer so i probably this time next year will have more to talk about I, i'd like to continue doing some sort of social media thing that more relates to the research i'm doing now or, or what i want to get involved with now but i'm kind of still feeling all that out so i guess i will uh if, if we meet again in the future to talk about things i can update you on it then Great. Thank you so much, Andrew. I can't wait to see what you do next. I mean, yeah, really thrilling um, to hear about what you're doing. And yeah, I'm looking forward to your future research. Thank you. It was great catching up with both of you.